and uh, we very much look forward to pastors returning next week, continuing to open up for us the Gospel of Mark. That's been such a yes. And uh, for today, how many of you like to watch or read a good biography? Yes. Certainly a person's life story can be interesting, entertaining, can also help us, right? With life lessons, maybe inspiration, examples to follow. Well, this morning we're going to look into the biography, a biography found in the New Testament as we consider the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And this may help us in a few ways. Obviously, we have his writings, the scripture he authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 13 epistles of the New Testament, so much rich doctrine. But in addition, Paul left us some examples to follow from his own life, the way he will look at some of those. And one other benefit we may find here is to see the stunning providence of God demonstrated in Paul's life. How God wove together the various parts of the gospel of Christ out to the ends of the ancient world. That story is truly amazing. And it brings glory to the God who brought it all about. Now, it is significant where we first meet Paul in the New Testament. Do you remember where that is? I heard somebody say it. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts 7. Stephen has preached his great sermon before Israel's Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, showing that Israel's history pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Sadly, Stephen and his message are violently rejected. Look at verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. What a way to come onto the scene of the New Testament. Proving of, perhaps organizing, this murder of Stephen. We need to consider this man's name. From here in chapter 7 and on into chapter 13, Luke, the author of Acts, calls him Saul. That's his Jewish name, reflecting his descent from the tribe of Benjamin, which had produced Israel's first king named Saul. Apparently, Paul is the Greek form of his Roman name. It was typical in that day to have these different names. Luke be begins to use his Roman name in Acts As Paul 9, he writes, But Saul, who was also called Paul, notice it does not say that his name was changed from Saul to Paul, does it? No, it's Saul, who was also called Paul. Apparently, from that point on, then it's appropriate to use his Roman name as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and travels throughout the Roman Empire. So we first find him here opposing Christianity. How did he get to this point? Let's look into his background a bit, and we'll be pulling from many different passages. He is born a Jew, raised in a Jewish home. His father is a Pharisee. In Philippians 3, he tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. Paul's Jewish identity is very important to him and remains so throughout his life. He was educated in Jerusalem, as he says, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, at the feet of a rabbi named Gamaliel, who was also a Pharisee and probably the most respected rabbi of his day. So Paul has this high-level education. Now, the Pharisees, or separated ones, originally started out in the era between the Old and New Testaments wanting to protect their Jewish heritage against pressures to adopt Greek culture and religion. Both Greece and Rome were polytheistic. They wanted to stay true to the God of Israel, remain obedient to the law. That's a pretty good motive, right? But over time, as we know, many in this group went badly off course. Paul called the Pharisees the strictest party of our religion, so fastidious about law-keeping, emphasizing the letter of the law. Over time, they added hundreds of extra rules to it trying to put a sort of fence around the law with traditions that amounted to extra law. Supposedly, this would protect people from violating the commands of Scripture. It didn't work. It doesn't work. This became a set of errors that we call legalism. Legalism includes the idea that you can earn a right standing before God by your law-keeping, your strict adherence to the law. Legalists tend to add rules to Scripture and bind others to them. Ironically, that tendency can actually lead a person to violate the commands of Scripture. Jesus himself rebuked the Pharisees of his day, Mark 7. He tells them, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus had a lot to say about the Pharisees. Legalism, with his emphasis on external behavior and not the heart, tends to foster spiritual pride, and that is not the way to be right with God. See Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Well, Paul was excelling as a Pharisee. He writes in Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my father's. So picture him at the head of the class, studying under Gamaliel. Note there, he is extremely zealous. Apparently, Paul was born with a strong personality. That's how he's wired. In the right service of God, that becomes highly valuable. But at this point, as a Pharisee, he rejects the gospel of Christ in part because it offers a salvation by grace based upon the righteousness, a righteousness that Christ has earned. Legalism runs on human merit. So Paul now persecutes the followers of Christ. He tells the Galatians, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In Acts 22, he says, I persecuted this way, that's Christianity, to the death. 
In Acts 26, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Acts 8 says Paul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Wow! The word terrorist comes to mind. Now, let's pause here and think about, do you know anyone who you think is beyond the saving reach of God? Someone so sinful, so set against God, you think there is no way they would ever come to faith? How powerful is God to save? How powerful is the Holy Spirit to change a human heart? Look over at Acts chapter 9. This conversion or turning is so strategic, we find accounts of it three different times. Here, as well as in chapter 22 and 26, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. <clears throat> he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now certainly, this conversion has unique elements to it. This is probably not how you came to faith. But in many ways, it's just like the conversion of any other Christian, right? God regenerates the heart of this man, brings his heart from spiritual death to life. Saul is born again, born from above. And Paul himself would later describe the new birth like this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the creative power of God to save. It is effective. When God says, let there be, it happens. And Paul is now completely turned around, isn't he? Think about this. For him, this involves at the same time a great tearing down and a great building up. His life as a self-righteous legalist crashes. That's over. On the other hand, his life as a Jew rises to a fulfillment beyond his imagination. Notice he's called into ministry at the time of his conversion. Verse 15, to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Elsewhere, he tells of a particular calling to bring the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews, especially those who have never heard it. Now, question, when had God chosen Paul for this? He writes in Galatians, But when he, God, had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he goes on. This has always been God's plan. Paul says of himself that he has been called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Apostle, literally sent one, personally selected by Jesus, having personally seen the risen Jesus, chosen to be his representative, take his message out into the world by preaching and writing scripture that will be preserved and remains with us today. He tells the Galatians that after his conversion, for three years, He went away to Nabatabian Arabia, then back to Damascus. During that interval, he received direct revelation from Christ himself. So important to get the gospel right, especially for what this man will be doing. He then connects with the other apostles, including two weeks with Peter, who is, in a sense, the leading apostle to the Jews. Antioch then becomes the launching point for the church to get the gospel out beyond Palestine. Paul is sent from there on several great missionary journeys. Look at the maps at the end of your Bibles. 
to lands all around the Mediterranean basin, the Roman world, with co-workers, Barnabas, Silas, Luke, Timothy, and others. His pattern for ministry, go into a city and first go to the Jewish synagogue. This is from Acts 17. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ, the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, Messiah. Now that's not exactly your normal synagogue message. What's the typical result of this? Some believe. Some are indifferent. Many reject, sometimes violently. When that happens, he goes to the Gentiles, which often results in a church being planted in that city, perhaps at first in a home. A church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, both those groups are now in Christ into the one people, they're united into the one people of God, a point he will often stress in his letters. Now, something to note as he preaches to Jews, this from Acts 18 in Ephesus. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures, the Old Testament, that the Christ was Jesus. This is a huge change in Paul. With his conversion, now he really understands the Old Testament in a way that he did not before. Think about it. He's been a student of the Old Testament under Gamaliel, probably had much of it memorized. He seems to quote it easily in his letters, doesn't he? But now, since his conversion, it's like a veil has been taken away. The dots connect, and he can see where it goes. This is an important work of the Holy Spirit. With regeneration, a person is enabled to understand the Scripture in a way that they could not before. It's really like one's eyes are open. We call this work of the Spirit illumination. And we can see it clearly evidenced in Paul. All of his previous theological training is brought to life. He becomes a powerful preacher of the Word and a master theologian. The Spirit has gifted him to that. And over the course of about 15 years, he writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 13 letters called epistles, that's from the Greek word for letter, that would make up much of the New Testament. Some think he may have also written the book of Hebrews, that is debated. Many of his letters are written to churches around the Mediterranean basin. Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, and Rome. Others are written primarily to individuals. Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Many of these he writes from prison or under house arrest in Rome. And Paul now really understands the gospel, the good news of salvation through Christ. He had certainly heard the gospel before his conversion. He probably heard Stephen's sermon. But now he has been enabled to see it's true. Jesus is the Messiah. 
the anointed one that the Old Testament with all of its types and shadows points to. As an apostle, Paul is laser focused on this gospel. He was a passionate person before his conversion. Now he has a passion to preach the gospel. He's compelled to preach it. First Corinthians, he writes, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Elsewhere, he writes, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He won't be taken off that message because that is the thing that God uses to save, bring people to faith, right? The power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was not impressive in himself. He's not a charismatic, imposing figure. His opponents wrote of him, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. He admits he didn't come with lofty speech or eloquent wisdom. He simply communicated the message, communicated the message of Jesus Christ and what he's done to save sinners. That's where the power lies and still lies today. Amen? He writes Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, what is this gospel? What is its content? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The scholar Guy Waters points out that Paul gives us a short answer and a long answer to that question. The short answer can be seen here in Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And he goes on in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and he goes on. So there's a short outline of the gospel. Now, if you want a long answer to the question, what is the gospel? There may be no better place to look than his letter to the church in Rome. The book of Romans, don't worry, we're not going to read the book of Romans, <laughs> is Paul's longest letter it's been called the greatest letter ever written. It'd be hard to counter that. This is Paul's great exposition of the gospel, really his magnum opus, his great work, although, of course, of course the Holy Spirit has primary authorship, right, working through Paul. Turn to Romans 3, and let's look at perhaps the most important paragraph of this letter, Paul has spent nearly three chapters exposing the bad news of humanity's depravity and lost condition, quoting from the Old Testament to show that none is righteous, no, not one. The whole world is guilty of sin before a holy God. The whole world needs redemption. Then, starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, here is the good news the remedy. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And it goes on. So we are redeemed, justified, made right with God through faith in Christ. Not our works, not our law-keeping. Listen, you will never be good enough on your own to become right with God. You need the righteousness of another. Clearly, we are saved by grace, unmerited favor. It's a gift, and it is ultimately God's doing. Listen to this from Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. You all know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our good works then serve to evidence, to show the saving work of God in us. For Paul, the grace of God is a precious and very personal thing, especially considering his history. He writes about grace over and over in his letters, often leads, leads him to praise God. Paul never got over the grace of God and brothers and sisters, nor should we, amen? So now we have a great irony in the life of Paul. Here it is. The one who was the expert legalist is now the apostle of grace. Consider how his background becomes useful here. He's going to go out and talk with a lot of people, right? All over the Roman Empire, including many Jews who are stuck in legalism. He will hear much of what, what they say. He will hear their theology, their objections to the gospel. He's very familiar with that, right? Because he's lived it. Who better now to engage with those people? And he writes scripture that will help people out of those errors of legalism. See Galatians and many other places. For example, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, writing there of being in Christ, united to Christ, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's legalism, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, united to Christ by faith, God gives us a righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is credited to us. That is good news. Now think about this. When we look back at Paul's life before his conversion, his legalism, his persecuting Christians, we find that God used even this man's sin for his redeeming purposes. 
including the salvation of many people and the writing of much of the Bible that you're holding today. This is one big lesson from Paul's life. God is sovereign even over human sin. Now, that doesn't take away human responsibility, but God uses even human sin to bring about His purposes. Isn't that amazing? As Paul himself would later write, God works all things together for good. Now, as we think further about how Paul is used to spread the gospel out into the first century world, we need to consider the influence of three great cultures, Israel, Greece, and Rome. We've already looked at his background in Judaism, including his exposure to the Old Testament. There's one more piece to that. As a Jew, Paul learned a trade that was customary for Jewish young men. Do you remember what that was? A bunch of folks have that. Tent making. Big demand for that at that time, for the military, for travelers. This would help Paul in his ministry because it was a portable trade. You could take that with you. And he was going to be moving around a lot. He worked as a tent maker to support himself, even though he could have relied on the churches for support. He tells the Corinthians it's important for him to offer the gospel free of charge. Why? To set him apart from some other traveling teachers who were motivated by greed, in it for the money. So, tent making, his occupation is providential. Now, in addition to Judaism, Paul would have been highly influenced by Greek culture. A few centuries before the New Testament opens, Greeks, Greece became the dominant world power. The many conquests of Alexander the Great were followed by a policy called Hellenization, basically imposing Greek culture and language on all of those conquered lands. And so, most of the world, the known world, became, in many ways, Greek. And that Greek influence carried over much of it into the Roman Empire and beyond. Architecture, think Parthenon. Mathematics, think Pythagoras, for those of you who love math. Politics, and especially philosophy. We all know these names. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. Greek influence would have been strong in Tarsus, the city where Paul was born. Tarsus was the capital of the Roman province Cilicia in what is now southeast Turkey. Paul says it was no ordinary city. Indeed, it was known for commerce, located on a river about 18 miles from the Mediterranean coast, and education had one of the three elite universities of the ancient world, the others being in Athens and Alexandria, with a library of some 200,000 volumes. For a young man growing up in the first century, especially one who would pursue higher education, Greek influence would have been strong. And so we find Paul in Acts 17, preaching in Athens at the Areopagus, Mars Hill marshalling his Greek education as he connects with these people. 
He quotes Epimenides and the poet Eratos. You want to talk about philosophy? You want to bring the best human ideas into the discussion? Okay, we can do that. But one way or another, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ and what he's done to save sinners. Paul's education is evident as he speaks. The Roman procurator Festus at one point referenced his great learning. God used it powerfully in his ministry. And his great learning with his intellectual gifts explains in part why so much of what he writes is, should we say, challenging. Would any of you testify to that? We take comfort in what the Apostle Peter says. Speaking of Paul's letters as Scripture, he writes, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. Remember that the next time your small group is struggling a bit. Now, the other very significant thing that Greece contributes here is language. As we come into the first century, Greek has become the lingua franca, the bridge language that connects people all over the world. Most scholars think that Paul was actually fluent in four different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic, which are closely related, Latin with his Roman influence, and Greek. Greek was the common language and happens to be a very nuanced, very precise language so in God's providence, the New Testament was written in Greek. And as it goes out throughout the ancient world, it gets to people who are able to hear it, read it, and understand it. That's not an accident. That's God's design. A third great culture important to this story is Rome. Shortly before the New Testament era, Rome conquered the world, including Palestine, Paul then lives in what we call the Greco-Roman world. Now, Paul was actually born a Roman citizen. We're not sure exactly how that came about, but it does help him in his ministry. In Acts 22, he invokes his citizenship to avoid being flogged. Well, that helps. And in chapter 25, he used it to successfully appeal for a hearing to the, for the emperor in Rome extending the reach of his ministry. His Roman background also equips him to minister to other Roman citizens, including the military. Apparently, as a prisoner of Rome, at one point, he shared the gospel with the whole imperial guard. Imagine being a soldier assigned to guard the apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? Wow. Bring your Bible. One of the things Rome became very good at was building roads. Still places today over there, you can walk over these Roman roads. Well-engineered, easy to navigate, connecting the major cities throughout the empire. And Rome took steps to make travel on their roads safe, especially for its citizens. Detachment of soldiers, detachment stationed along at watchtowers, posts along the way. Also at this time, there was protection from the Roman Navy for ships sailing across the Mediterranean Sea. Caesar Augustus had established this safe travel with a uniform rule of law. 
all part of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that existed during Rome's golden age. Now, think about this, how this relates to the spread of the gospel. Paul and his missionary co-workers get the gospel out through preaching and the Greek New Testament. Paul writes much of that. Paul and his companions are able to travel with that message on safe, reliable Roman roads or on protected ships. It's almost like God has designed this. And so we see this amazing providence of God, especially in the life of Paul. These three great cultures converge. His background, all this history is woven together. He is ideally suited at this time to take the gospel out to the ends of the ancient world. God sovereignly brings that about in his providence. God provides. And praise God, that gospel in time has come to us today. Are you thankful for that? Now, for the rest of our time, let's just look at just a few ways in which Paul serves as an example for us, okay? We'll touch on just a few areas here. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he writes this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Notice how he qualifies that. To the extent that I show Christ-like character, follow that. What might that include? Well, there's a lot to choose from. But perhaps for today we can identify seven items from Paul's life for us to emulate. First is his humility. He writes to the Romans, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, reflecting on his pre-conversion life, he writes, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. This is a humble man. He identifies himself several times as a slave of Christ, submitted to Christ, desiring to obey Christ. That should be true for all of us, right? And indeed, he applies that term for slave, doulos in the Greek, to all Christians. There's a right humility in that. He is God, we are not. In 1 Corinthians 4, he uses another Greek term to identify himself, huperetes. That was used to describe an under rower, a galley slave who rowed from the bottom of a ship. So think Charlton Heston from the movie Ben-Hur. That would be the 1959 version for those of you old enough to remember that. It's not exactly an elite position, right? Humble, hardworking servant. In 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of the gospel, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, there's nothing special about me. The gospel is the treasure. I'm just an ordinary person, like a clay pot, fragile, breakable, nothing ornate. So any success of my ministry is due entirely to the power of God. He is rightly humble. 
Because of his position as an apostle and the fact that he received direct revelation from Jesus, Paul would have lived constantly with a temptation towards sinful pride, right? He tells us that God allowed a particular trial in his life. We don't know for sure what it was. This is from 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The lesson here, a humble person acknowledges their complete dependence on God. My grace is sufficient for you. A second characteristic of Paul to follow is his pursuit of sanctification. All Christians in this life are being sanctified, being made holy, set apart from sin, set apart to God. The paradox here is that God the Holy Spirit works that in us and he calls us to personally, actively pursue it. Paul tells Christians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul was not a perfect Christian. Nobody in this life is. Listen to this from Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. The more we mature as believers, the more we see our remaining sin. This is the mature response to that. So there's this ongoing conflict, struggle in the Christian life a battle for holiness. You experienced that, right? How's it going? Let's follow Paul. In Philippians 3, he writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let all of us who are mature think this way. Watch the Olympics tonight. The finals of the 100 meters. Those gentlemen will be agonizing, pressing toward the goal. So Christian, pursue your sanctification. Press on. Related to that, a third example from Paul to emulate is pursue conflict resolution. Paul gives us written instruction for this often, and he models for us how to do it. 
Here's Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. In Philippians chapter 4, he writes to arbitrate between two Christian women, Iodia and Syntyche. Work this out. He also writes to Philemon, exhorting him to welcome Onesimus, who ran away from his position of service. He's now a Christian. He's a brother. You need to reconcile with him. And then turn to Galatians chapter 2. Sometimes resolving conflict involves having difficult conversations, right? Even with people in authority. Galatians 2, starting at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he stops fellowshipping with Jewish Gentile Christians. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Wow, Peter, you're separating from the Gentiles. You're causing division in the church. This is a difficult but very necessary conversation. The church did struggle with this for a while, Jew-Gentile relations, but over time, they got it worked out. This account shows us that even the apostles in this life are in that process of sanctification. Life in the church is sometimes messy. Would you agree? We all stumble in many ways. In Acts 15, we read of a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Paul did not want to take John Mark on their next missionary journey because he had turned back on a previous journey. This disagreement actually caused Paul and Barnabas to part ways. We find later that these men worked through that conflict, and it's then beautiful to see a reference in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, regarding John Mark. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. They worked it out. Now, Paul also recognized that sometimes conflicts are not resolved well. Sometimes people run from conflict or remain stuck in anger, fear. That's sad when that happens in the church, isn't it? Nevertheless, we're all responsible to pursue resolution to the extent that we can. So Paul writes Romans 12, 18, if possible, 
So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's think of conflict resolution as just a normal part of the Christian life, and let's practice it, speaking the truth in love. A fourth example to imitate. Endure suffering with an eternal perspective. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Remember at Paul's conversion, the Lord told Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We already mentioned his thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 11, he provides these details of his life. Last part of verse 23. With imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. People there thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. How does anyone keep going through that? Earlier in the same letter, chapter 4, he wrote, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Certainly, God gave Paul grace to endure these things. Also necessary, keep an eternal perspective. Keep the bigger picture always in mind. He writes this, so we do not lose heart. Through Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. In this fallen world, we go through trials, right? In various forms, some measure we suffer. May God help us to cultivate the kind of eternal perspective expressed here by Paul. A fifth characteristic to imitate, love people. Love people. Paul is the human author of perhaps the greatest passage on love ever written, 1 Corinthians 13. And he demonstrated that kind of love. It's all over his 13 letters. For example, this to the church in Thessalonica. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. 
He treasures these people. Elsewhere, we see Paul's heart for the lost, for those who have not embraced the gospel of Christ. In Romans 9, thinking of his fellow Jews, he writes this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, my fellow Jews. This reminiscent of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, the city rejecting her Messiah. May God help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for and share the gospel with everyone who needs it. Amen? A sixth example from Paul, love God, glorify Him. Jesus reiterated the greatest command in Scripture. What was that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not natural for fallen man, but with a regenerated heart, it does become our desire. We see Paul's love for God in many ways, including his many expressions of praise. Often in his writings, we find doxology, literally a word of glory, word of glory, bringing glory to God. For example, after 11 chapters in Romans of explaining God's plan to redeem humanity, contemplating the Old Testament with that. He writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Here's 1 Timothy 1.17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Many times like this, Paul bursts out in doxology. And as we look into the Scripture, meditate on the goodness and majesty of God and how He has saved us, may we be a people who praise Him worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, bringing Him glory. And lastly, one more lesson from the Apostle Paul and something to imitate, finishing well. This had been Paul's goal for a long time. He writes in Acts 20, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his goal. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. One more passage. 2 Timothy 4. This is the last letter we have from Paul, writing here from a Roman prison, anticipating he will be put to death soon for his faith in Christ. From a human standpoint, this is a pretty sad ending. He is, for the most part, alone. There's no fanfare. 
This is not a picture of worldly success. But God defines success differently, right? Look at verses 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Would you call that finishing well? May we as a church encourage one another to finish like this. None of us knows the time of our departure, do we? May we stay faithful to the end. And if you are struggling with the thought of persevering to the end, wondering if you will make it, take in this word of assurance written by this, written by this apostle, apostle, Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will finish what he started, amen? And so, these are a few lessons from the Apostle Paul, from the scripture he left us and the way he lived it out. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for how you have provided for your church through the Apostle Paul, the scripture he wrote under the Spirit's inspiration and the example that he left in how he lived that out in his own life. We ask that you would now work these things into us so that more and more we would be living testimonies to your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.